0: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So Cass, the subject of today's podcast
2: was once described by a friend as, quote, an American free spirit wrapped in the body of a Greek goddess. Wow, I want
0: (laughs) someone to describe me
2: like that. Right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, And of her own life, she also once remarked that she, quote, didn't waste a minute all my life. And by the end of this episode, Dress listeners, I'm sure that all of you will certainly agree. Because for the last four seasons of Dress, I have really, really wanted to do an episode on the
0: inimitable, the fearless, and the force of nature that was Lee Miller. And it is because Lee's life and career was so incredibly extraordinary that we will focus on but a small sliver of it today. And that is the year surrounding World War II. So perhaps, April, a brief bio is in order to set the scene before we introduce today's guest. Shall we? Yes, certainly. Please take it away. Born Elizabeth Miller in Poughkeepsie, New York in 1907, Lee, as she was later known, was often the subject growing up of her father's amateur photography. This role of model would turn professional following a chance meeting with Vogue publisher Condé Nast in 1927. Described as, quote, one of the most beautiful women of the 20th century, Lee now found herself in the position of model and muse to now legendary photographers and modern artists that included some people you may or may not have have heard of Edward Steichen, Jean Cocteau, Pablo Picasso and Man Ray.
2: And Man Ray went on to become not only Miller's lover, but also her teacher. And get this, this is how this went down. She tracked him down in Paris with an introduction letter from Picasso in her hand, presented (laughs) it to him, and summarily informed him that she was his new photography student. Um, You know, this, this really kind of like describes her fearlessness and her personality. And after she started studying photography, it wasn't long before she transitioned from taking her own self-portraits to the other side of the camera, no longer the model, but the photographer on fashion shoots. And then in the early 1930s, she set up her own photography studio in New York City, and there she quickly found success in both commercial photography, fashion photography, and also fine art photography, working in the surrealist genre.
0: Lee married Egyptian businessman Aziz Aloui Bey in 1934, and the couple lived in Cairo for several years before Lee returned to Paris. She did this in 1937, and it was reportedly because she was disillusioned with her marriage and life in Egypt. It was now in Europe that today's story picks up, and we are so delighted to welcome not one, but two guests to today's show. Amy Hussain, Lee Miller's granddaughter, joins us as does fashion historian and past dress guest Amber Butchart. They join us to discuss their book Lee Miller: Fashion in Wartime Britain, which also features contributions by Robin Muir. This book accompanies an exhibition of Lee Miller's fashion photography currently on view in East Sussex, England, where Amy serves currently as a trustee and co-director of the Lee Miller Archives, the Pinrose Collection, and Farley's House and Gallery on the site of her grandparents' former estate.
2: And many of our listeners may already know Amber as a media personality in the UK. She is the host of the wonderful television series A Stitch in Time, which is now available in the US on Netflix, and also her appearance on The Great British Sewing Bee. So check out both of her television shows. Ladies, thank you for joining us today. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. What a treat to get to speak with you both about Lee Miller.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having us. This is lovely. Yeah.
2: Amy, uh, my first question is for you. Your grandmother really led an exceptional life. It might not have always been perfect, but she was really one of those avant-garde spirits and a a kind of a shining example of the quote-unquote modern woman of the early 20th century who really thought for herself and kind of moved through the world as she saw fit. You know, she was in her 20s in Paris during the 1920s, which was an incredible period of time to live through, I'm sure. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she passed around the time that you were born. So you have gotten to know her through your family and also your work. And you have been the trustee of Lee's extensive archive and also the co-director of her former estate, Farley's House. And I think we're going to touch on the significance of Farley's House a little bit later in the episode. But you have been working with your grandmother's work professionally for the last 20 years. So could you tell us a little bit about the Lee Miller Archive? And I do believe that a lot of the images that are included in the book haven't really been seen before or perhaps since their original date of publication, which in many cases was around 75 years ago. She is amazing, isn't she? I
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel really privileged that, that she's this inspiring woman that like broke boundaries and super lucky to have been able to work and care for her legacy and the fact that it's my own family history as well. So I kind of get paid to work on my family history. The archive's got more than 60,000 negatives. We hold 20,000 vintage prints, more than 20,000 pages of manuscripts and notes that she made as well, as we actually have some of her original clothes too. And yeah, I mean, you're right. The Most of the pictures in the book haven't been seen since they were first published. So the, this ex, this, the, the, the book and the exhibition are, is quite exciting for us.
2: Yes, 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 yes. Um, how long has the archive been in working order?
3: It started actually, it's partly my fault um, because as you said, I was born um, just actually three months before Lee died. So we met. But we didn't get to have any great chats or anything. Um, (laughs) Although, apparently, I I was sick on her shoulders. So I think I'm one of the few people in the world that can claim to have vomited on Lee Miller. (laughs) 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 But basically, my mum wanted baby pictures of my dad to compare us. And she asked my granddad, Roland, where she might find any. And he was like, oh, you know, I think there might be some, some boxes in the attic of some pictures you know, her, her, right at the back, have a have a little look. So she went up and instead of finding baby pictures of my dad, she found the Lee's first combat manuscript that she where she was writing about the Siege of St. Marlowe and the photographs of the the bombing and the fighting. And um she brought it down and showed it to my dad. And he had no idea that his mum had done that. And he just was gripped and wanted to find out who she really was, what she'd really done. And there and then the two of them kind of started the Lee Miller archives and it's been going for 43
2: years. It's amazing. I would love to come visit someday and, and see all of the treasures that are surely in there. Many of them, of course, I think there's around 100 images in the book. And the book actually encompasses but a slice of Lee's career as a photographer, um, specifically her work in British fashion during the years of World War II from 1939 to early 1944. So Amber, question for you as our fashion historian, I'm hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about what sort of impact World War II had on British fashion, particularly during these first few years of the war.
1: Well, the first few months of war alone had a huge impact on, of course, on everything in Britain. The cost of living itself rose by about 25%. Wow. So things became hugely more expensive. It was much, much, much more difficult for people to you know, go about their lives as they had done before the war for a number of reasons. And this also hugely impacted the way that people were dressing. And there were a few different reasons for that. Firstly, you start to see huge numbers of people in uniform like people in uniform really proliferated not only people who were seeing active service on the fronts the war fronts uh, but also people working in auxiliary services in britain really all over the place and with that with that focus on uniform you start to see other aspects of really formal fashion dropping out of view a bit becoming less important evening dress for example you get some reports in fashion magazines talking about you know how embarrassing it would be if you were wearing a really fancy evening gown next to someone in uniform Uh, and so there's this real shift especially for I guess people who would be reading sort of society magazines there's this real shift in terms of the codes of clothing that are acceptable
2: Yeah, I think maybe we'll talk about this a little bit um, at the end of the episode, but I think that there are some very distinct parallels to be made to what's happened to all of us in 2020 and 2021 in terms of, like, the predominance of, like, you know, less formal modes of dressing. So, Amy, my next question is for you because, of course, your grandmother was American. She was born in New York State. And how did she find herself in London at the outbreak of World War II? Because really, this was a period of time when Americans in Europe were returning back to the States, you know, for the comparative safety of America, um, not necessarily venturing out into the world towards the conflict.
3: Yeah, it's kind of— Backwards, but then she quite liked to challenge things throughout her life. She moved mostly because of to London, mostly because of my granddad. He'd been trying to woo her for two years away from her Egyptian husband, and it was just very bad timing that they arrived in England um, on the day that Britain declared war. <laughs> but she wrote, she wrote to her older brother John back in Poughkeepsie, New York, um, that she felt that she'd fought and struggled hard to years ago to live in Europe and choose her friends and their way of living and that she couldn't leave now just because there was a scarcity of butter and she also felt that maybe with the photography work that she was doing that might help buy a gun so she's kind of wanted to do what she could even though America hadn't yet
2: become part of the war yeah. And what she did, the part that she played, um, had a great deal to do with British Vogue. They kind of scoop her up and recruit her to work for them pretty much right away. And can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances of her employment at British Vogue? Because they really put her to work. And she also had this long-standing relationship with American Vogue, if you could touch on that a bit.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, originally she was an American in England, and she didn't have a working visa, so she couldn't work. So she got a letter from from American Vogue asking her, well, they asked her if she could go and work at British Vogue, but actually she's and run the studio there. But she actually started off just by volunteering because she didn't have a working visa. She worked freelance for them throughout the war, but she became really early on. She became British Vogue's main contributor because most of the male photographers had been called up and they really needed somebody that could step into it and knew the high standards of Vogue photography. She'd worked for American Vogue. I mean, she started off as a model in the the late 20s. But by September 1930, she transitioned to the other side. She was in Paris and her photography of fashion was appearing in American Vogue. She, so she was contributing to American Vogue from Paris. And then when she went back to New York uh, in 1932, she also worked for them there. So they knew, they knew that she was, you know, had a good standard of photography.
2: Yeah. And in addition to her amazing editorial spreads that she was producing for the magazine, they had her working on all sorts of other catalogs and projects. And is there anything that she couldn't do I mean she was a powerhouse basically she was uh,
3: absolutely prolific no I don't think there wasn't <laughs> an amazing imagination and an amazing creative flair I mean you've got to imagine that also like Vogue Studios was bombed once it caught fire a couple of times the maybe sometimes they had to work with the neighboring building still smoldering so often they couldn't use the studio they were going out into the streets. she was having to find weird locations to do the shoots and these ways of showing things that weren't previously fashionable and making them look fashionable and appealing.
2: Yeah, and Amber, um, it's noted in the catalog for the exhibition, the book that we're discussing today, that, and I love the fact that you guys have alighted the name of British Vogue to just refer to it moving forward as (laughs) Brogue. This is the first time I have heard this.
3: That's what they called it. (laughs) And French Vogue was called Frogue. But that's what they called it at that time.
2: (laughs) I don't know how as a fashion historian, I've completely missed this fact, but it's great. I'm going to use it from now on. But apparently, Brogue never skipped a single issue during the six years, you know, leading up to and kind of surrounding the war. So, Amber, why was keeping the fashion press moving forward important at this time?
1: This was important because, uh, you know, this was obviously a time where there are fewer channels of communication than we have today. And so women's magazines like Brogue worked quite closely with the Ministry of Information so that they could be a real source of information, of tips, you know, providing this quite useful information to their readers now it wasn't without entirely without controversy. There was in fact a Welsh MP who really complained, was absolutely outraged that Vogue was being published. Still was being published on quite superior paper, um, and you know it was full of essentially what he termed ads for luxury products. It was seen as really out of kilter with. A lot of the directives that were coming from the Board of Trade and things like that, and the government, but it did have to hugely reduce the amount that it was. You know, it was down to about 19.5 percent of the pre-war usage of paper, things like this. And it did genuinely provide an important role, important information for women. Also, the editor Audrey Withers, um, you know, who had a fantastic relationship with Lee Miller. She really encouraged women to share their copies of Vogue. And there was a survey done after the war that said they believed that each issue of Vogue had probably been read by about 14 different women. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So we are seeing a huge amount of sharing of this and of this it becoming a real tome, you know, providing it really important information.
2: Mm -hmm. And also kind of directives that wander into my next question for you, because as we move further into the war period, many different forms of rationing were put in place, including clothing rationing. So can you tell us a little bit more about this, how the system for rationing worked in Britain, and also a little bit about the amazing, incredible government scheme for utility fashions?
1: Yes, for sure. Well, clothing rationing came into effect in Britain in June in 1941. And this was announced over the radio and they would kept it kind of a little bit quiet because they didn't want. And again, you know, similar to what we saw during the pandemic last year with people panic buying. They didn't want people going out and panic buying. They wanted to just be able to introduce this and without too much fuss, essentially so it was sort of declared um was declared over the radio and what you see with this is that you get coupons being introduced. Uh, clothing like rationing is essentially sort of the implementation of state controlled production to ensure fairer distribution. And I think that's really important to keep in mind because it was helpful in that it conserved materials for the war effort. It also certainly can serve labour for the war effort. We're seeing some factories being requisitioned for war use. But crucially, we've seen this huge inflation in the cost of living in the first months of war alone. And there is no equal access to clothing. And so that is brought about with uh, rationing, needing coupons as well as money to be able to buy clothing. And then also the Utility Apparel Order, which is brought in the next year in 1942. And this lasts for about a decade. Like we're seeing this last into the 1950s. It's not just the actual period of warfare. Uh, So with utility clothes, they're made from a sort of limited range of quality controlled fabrics. So again, this is all about creating efficiency in factories And it also means that there's a really solid calibre of price regulated clothing being produced. So it's again, it's about fairer distribution. So it's really in terms of fashion history, it's really interesting period in British history because it is this state regulation, the kind of which we haven't seen before or since really. But it meant, you know, the idea behind it was about people, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, being able to access quality clothing.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I've had the occasion one time in museum collections to see several different pieces of, of garments from the utility scheme, and also I randomly found one in a vintage store many many years ago. That is the holy grail. I know. Vintage shopping, and I was shopping <laughs> with a fellow fashion historian friend, and she was already working on this kind of period. So I was like, "It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. Take it before I take it." That's so kind of (laughs) me. Yeah, but it it was one of those kind of thrilling moments when your heart starts beating really fast and you're like, oh, they don't know what that is, but we know what that is. So that was very fun. And I think that some of our listeners might be rather surprised to learn that a few of the top British designers of this period were actually contributing designs to the utility clothes. Why was their participation important?
1: Yes, the same year that the utility scheme launches, you see the um, introduction of the Incorporated Society of London Fashion Designers, fantastic name, which was shortened to InkSock, which, like you say, was you know some of the top British designers of the day grouping together for this particular purpose. People like Norman Hartnell, Digby Morton, Bianca Mosca, etc. etc. Now, one of the real reasons for this was about creating clothing for exports. And this is actually a real line that you see running through both British Vogue and American Vogue in the first few years of war as well, is that American readers are really encouraged to buy British fashion because it will, I think there was an article that said it will, you know, fashion pays for planes and supplies. Um, This idea that, you know, Americans buying British fashion is really doing your bit for the war effort. And and so a lot of these ink stock designers are creating designs for exports. Now, the government also gets them on board to anonymously create some designs for the utility scheme with the aim of kind of really, um, you know, sort of glamorizing the image of this utility clothing. Also, as part of rationing, there are austerity directives that are brought in. Uh, You know, saying how much you can have on your seams, how long hems can be, how many pockets you can have, again, to conserve materials. But this, you know, austerity directives sounds pretty drab, obviously. And so I think bringing in the ink sock designers was really a means of just encouraging people that to stick with the program basically this can be glamorous this can be fun and you have who have seen some of the utility pieces you know some of them are absolutely gorgeous mm. there is definitely there were no restrictions on color some of the pieces you can find in collections and museums in the uk are really bright really really nice designs it's not sure exactly how many of the sock designs went into production but you can find some in in collections in museums here and it was certainly a really important marketing drive yeah for sure
2: and and you know for a fashion photographer who is used to having so many resources at their fingertips in terms of styling a shoot and beautiful extravagant designs that they're going to feature i'm sure this period's austerity measures were a little bit of a challenge for lee but she took them on with great aplomb i would argue Amy, how do you feel the war evidenced itself in her fashion photography from this period? Well,
3: sometimes it's it's subtle hints. Other times it's a bit more obvious. There's um, you know, a couple of images in of fashion models in front of piles of rebel, and that's kind of like, oh, there is a war on. But it's also included purposefully because some of these pictures were going to be going to American Vogue, and it was another way of getting that message across some of them are less obvious there's a maternity coat with this amazing kind of crisscross pattern in black well it looks like it's black and white so the picture is black and white but it's a crisscross pattern along the back and Lee shot the woman from the back in the street and on the street the trees have similar lines painted on them which looks like it's supposed to be part of the set but actually the lines are painted on the trees because during the the blitz you couldn't have street lights and the white lines was to stop people from driving into the trees as they're going down the road or occasionally there's a Malbec coat fashion shot where the woman's in the middle of Hampstead Heath which is a a big kind of grassy park in London and in the distance in the sky you can
2: see um defense barrage balloons in in the air so it it ranges yeah and these are incredible descriptions that you have just provided for us. There are approximately 100 images in the book, and I'm sure both of you have favourites. Would both of you pick one or two and describe them for our listeners?
1: Some of my favourites are some that I actually referenced in the catalogue as well. It's from a shoot called Fashions for Factories. And what I love about these is that it really shows how Vogue as an institution helped to shift the paradigm of femininity, I suppose, through fashion. And that was really one of the key roles of the information coming through in Vogue was to say, you can work in a factory, you can work in the auxiliary forces, whatever you do, you can still be glamorous. Because there was still this idea, you know, the Board of Trade in 1940 had said you must remain Uh, you know, to keep up your morale, you must maintain a good appearance if you're a woman. Obviously, if you're a man, it doesn't matter. But if you're a woman, that's what you have to do. And so these pictures are women working in factories wearing boiler suits. And it is just pure utilitarian chic, essentially. You're seeing these quite tailored boiler suits with uh, tapering legs, tapering in at the ankles and little puffed shoulders as well. So there's clearly been an eye on fashion, which is also what the read uh, the writers in Vogue were encouraging for, for uniforms. You know, think about fashion as well when you're creating uniforms for women to wear. And they do up the back with these buttons and it, they're just absolutely glorious. And it's the sort of thing you could see again now, you know, work wear is so on vogue at the moment that I think you could really see these images in vogue. And this just shows women at work. For me, it really sums up the best of that kind of wartime glamour.
2: They're really, really beautiful. It's interesting because we see parallels in the United States as well with American designers designing specific collections for women doing war work in the factories, which is quite interesting. Amy, do you have a favourite or two? That's really
3: hard. <laughs> I mean, already these hundred came out of six thousand negatives because Lee was so prolific, and that's why why we wanted to put this book together is because Lee is known for her war correspondent work when she's reporting with the you know with the American forces as they're going through Europe. But actually, she was prolific, and she she had so many pictures. So this hundred is our favorite 100 from (laughs) 6,000, and then to choose a, a favorite from that. What I love about her fashion photography in general is that she allows the models a lot of the time to have their own personality. They're not deadpan. Yeah, there's a couple of really sassy-looking ladies watching some <laughs> of their clothes. Um, and I don't know a lot about fashion, so I can't talk about wonderfully tailored boiler suits like Amber can. But I just, I love that you feel the essence of the model, you feel the essence of Lee and the imagination. Like one, um, in one shot, there's a gorgeous suit with a hood and the, the model's holding um, cat. And in the background, the background Lee's chosen is a load of egg boxes just plastered on the wall. You know, like the cheap version of soundproofing a room. (laughs) She's done that. Or for um, a shoot that she's done for woolen clothes, woolen warms. She's chosen to do the shoot in a taxidermist shop. So you've got all these stuffed animals around these ladies that are trying to look warm in the winter. (laughs) it's just I do I I I love it because it shows her personality and and it's different and unique
1: I love that picture with the cat it's so good and also similar to the taxidermy there's a series of pictures that she's taken of women sort of going about their business so there's one of this a woman wearing this, you know, beautifully sort of uh, tailored skirt suits and she's shopping for mops. <laughs> and I really like those. And well.
3: another one where she's holding a bunch of radishes and you're like, why? Why radishes?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Working with what you got.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. But I lo- I love that. I just love, you-, you can see that she's got such a flair. And I think, although it's austerity and although she has to, she and Audrey Withers, the, the editor of Vogue, were really trying to push the idea of um, promoting British fashion and and what needed to be done to to help the war effort, that that she really kind of does it with flair and um, imagination, despite the restrictions.
2: Yeah. Well, and and I think, uh, you know, one could argue that she had spent years in front of the camera, so she knew both sides and she kind of knew what to ask from those models and, and how to, you know, extract it from them as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think she also um, knows how to make them feel comfortable.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I'm really glad you mentioned what needed to be done for the war, because in the book, it's noted that one of Lee's biographers observed, she realized that vote could be a powerful weapon of war. So how so? She knew that she was well. She
3: was a woman. She's not allowed to fight. And even when she became a woman war correspondent in December 1942, she actually was uh, part of the female women's war correspondence accreditation. Is that you're not allowed to cover combat. So she couldn't. She knew she couldn't carry a gun. So what? What's her next best weapon? It's her camera. And she knew that by by shooting that fashion by promoting. Short hair, so you're you for for factory workers. I mean, the turban as a, a as a way of keeping your hair back was something that she covered in the fashion factories article and constant articles about having your hair back, having your hair short. It was essential for women to do that. But before that, long hair had been the elegant fashion. She she felt that this was the best way that she could fight. And help her friends in Paris. I mean, Paris was um, occupied by the Nazis quite early on, and many of her really close friends were still there. And she had such a connection with the place.
2: And I think the war surrounding her while she is working at a fashion magazine was obviously on her mind because Robin Muir in his essay, which is also in the book, he actually quotes Lee writing to her parents in 1941 saying, it's pretty silly to go on working on a frivolous paper like Vogue. Though it may be good for the country's morale, it's hell on mine. So this internal conflict on her end is obviously present, probably for years. And partway through 1944, she shifts gears away from fashion. And I'm hoping one of you can touch on how she continued to contribute to Vogue over the next 18 months because she wasn't necessarily shooting fashion.
3: Yeah, I mean, once she got her war correspondence passed in December 43, she initially used that to give her access to photograph what other women were doing in Britain. So she covered the the women in the Royal Navy, the Wrens, the Women's Land Army, the ATS Searchlight Battery. And then as soon as she could, she was itching to be able to do more relevant content. And it's kind of crazy when you see the articles that she dispatched from the front, starting just after D-Day in Normandy, and as she's following the, the U.S. Army in the 83rd Division mostly. You kind of couldn't imagine those appearing in Vogue today. The way that she writes, the, the vivid images of, of conflicts that are there. But when she got to Paris, at the liberation of Paris, she was asked by British Vogue and American Vogue to stay there and help relaunch French Vogue. So she's going off to cover the Battle of the Bulge, or the fierce fighting in Alsace and the liberation of Luxembourg, and coming back to Paris, shooting French fashion to send to Britain and to help uh, relaunch French Vogue. So fashion is is always there, but it's a kind of in between
2: battles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this hat. Uh- my mind just blown. I mean, h- how can you do this? How can your mind switch gears like that so easily? And and to see some of the things that she saw on the battlefield, because she was at the liberation of Dachau and Buchenwald as well. Correct? Yeah. I mean, she was she was at
3: four of the prison camps. She went to Ohrdruf, Penning, Buchenwald, and then she was at the liberation of Dachau the morning the morning after. Um, and you know she, what she witnessed was was horrific. And it was something that would haunt her for the rest of her life. And she had to learn to live with, with those images and suffered what from what today is known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And in those days, they didn't even have a name for it. And you just put up and shut up and did the British stiff upper lip thing and got on with things. Um, but there was a lot of a lot of people post-war. Wasn't just her that really had so much to deal with in in their mental mental well being.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's also important as well to remember what Amy said earlier about women correspondents not being able to cover fighting. You know, she ended up at the um, siege of San Marlo by accident. There was like a communication error, and she ended up there, and fighting was still ongoing. And she ended up, you know, pretty much being the only reporter on, like her body of work is, is is so incredible. Um, You know, like you were saying, just incredible, the things she was seeing. And she, for that in particular, she wasn't even supposed to be there. And she got a sort of slight sort of telling off afterwards um, because, you know, she wasn't supposed to be reporting on this actual service. And she was also writing articles as well by this point to um, accompany the the pictures. And her writing is incredible. She was an amazing writer as well as an amazing photographer. She was really able to encapsulate the emotion that that went so vividly with the pictures she was taking. It really is just unbelievable. And the fact that this was featured in Vogue is just staggering. Yeah. And
2: something, I mean, it was an unusual move at the time, for a fashion magazine to cover the war this extensively. And some of these images are quite graphic.
3: But you have to remember that at this time, women didn't really read newspapers. Women only really read fashion magazines. So this was sometimes the only way that they would know what was happening. And when... when. Audrey Withers was Lee, the British Vogue editor. was interviewed about it. She she said it just made Vogue that more relevant and that more topical to its its female audience at the time.
1: Yeah.
3: And what Emma said about Lee's writing is so true. I think part of it is because she was expelled from school about four times, <laughs> and she didn't have any formal training as a writer. So she um, but she was really well read. She loved books. But so when she writes, there's no pretense, there's no kind of trying to follow some literate style. She just says it how she sees it. And it's really gritty and really raw. And you really you you feel like you're sitting with her, even though that was written, you know, 75, 80 years ago.
1: Yeah. It's also really interesting seeing the different reactions of the Vogue editors to what they would publish of her work as well. Because there was, especially with the, um, the, the prison camp, um, the concentration camp images, there was a real difference in what Audrey Withers published in Vogue and then what Edna Woolman Chase published in American Vogue. And you could, so there's a really brilliant book called Dressed for War about Audrey Withers by, by Julie Summer, which I would really recommend anyone to read who's interested in this period, as well as the book we're discussing today, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, just seeing those discussions and how they decided how to handle these images that you would never under any other circumstances imagine being published in a fashion magazine is is really sort of fascinating to read
3: yeah I think like by the time the the, the death camp pictures came out Britain was just it also kind of reflects it also reflects the mood of the different nations by the time the prison camp images were coming from Lee to British folk, the British public had just had enough of the war and wanted it to be over. Whereas in the American papers, it was more, it seems like it was more, they were like, this is why we went to war. And they were showing them, this is why we went in, and this is why we made the decision to join. And that big, it's more than a whole page, image that they published in American Vogue under the title Believe It, which is a pile of dead bodies, skeletal dead bodies piled up like like a wood pile, um, is just a huge, huge hitting. And I could not imagine it being published today.
2: I mean, seeing it now, even after seeing many, many, many images my entire life, it still hits pretty hard.
1: Yeah. I think even more so, you know, because it seems so incongruous in a magazine like Vogue, that that contrast, I think, makes it somehow, brings it home even more. Mm -hmm.
2: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
0: You will sleuth with June in the
2: antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens.
0: And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
2: That's
0: A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
2: Perhaps we should turn our attention to a little bit happier, I guess, question mark, (laughs) of a period of her war photography. Um, She was also, as Amy already mentioned, at the liberation of Paris in August of 1944. And she photographed and wrote Quite extensively about some of the occupation styles and also the state of Parisian chic after four years of Nazi subjugation in Paris. And she had some incredibly interesting observations on how the clothing restrictions played out in Britain versus occupied France. So, Amber, how were austerity measures received by the public? And was this sentiment
1: or what happened in France different?
2: Some of our regular listeners might already know the answer
1: to this, but. For people interested in fashion history, this the whole end of the Second World War. And then, you know, two years later, you have Christian Dior's new look. This is kind of a, there's so much mythologizing about this particular period. And so for me, when I began really in-depth researching Lee Miller's work in this area, I was so fascinated by the absolutely central role that she played in all of these discussions that were happening because it was from her reporting back to British Vogue you know the the fashions that some women in France were wearing were just so completely different and people in Britain were just outraged by by the fact this could be happening. There was a Labour paper called the Daily Herald and they talked about, they reported on Paris as being a city of staggering contrasts, expensive perfumes in the shop windows, coupons for bread, fashion parades in extravagant salons, queues for potatoes. And I think that summed it up quite nicely. And you can really see this contradiction and this tension in a lot of the fashion reportage that that Lee Miller is doing from Paris from the liberation because there's this huge debate over uh, the question of collaboration essentially and this is covered in a huge amount of detail really brilliantly as I'm sure a lot of listeners to this podcast will know in a book called Paris Fashion and World War II edited by Lou Taylor and Marie McLaughlin um, which is absolutely fantastic and this notion of Lucien Le Long, the head of Couture in France, he managed to keep the industry in France when the Nazis wanted to move it to Berlin or to Austria. Uh, he claimed he succeeded in saving many, many jobs and, you know, potentially people's lives. However, they had to, there was, you know, forced Aryanization under Nazi rule it was this question of, is this collaboration or is this not collaboration? And Lee's reporting is really at the centre of that. And they allowed Lucien Le Long to sort of put forward his own opinion in um, conversations that happened throughout various different international vogues, because she was also then, uh, you know, helped to reinstate French vogue as well. But you can see there is a bit of sort of contrast in what the way that she's writing about the French fashions that she's seeing. And she's talking about it as an act of resistance, which is also very interesting for for fashion theorists to consider, because I think this is something that we think about quite a lot in in fashion education, especially um, as you know, April, like this idea of fashion as resistance. And it's something she's talking a lot about, this idea that, well, yes, of course, French women are wearing these huge billowing skirts because it's a sign of defiance against the Nazis, whereas that was viewed very differently in Britain. And even, you know, in 1947, when Dior's New Look is launched, Britain is still seeing fabric rationing. We still have the utility clothing. And the Board of Trade really sort of speak out against these styles, even at that point, two years after the war. So she's just central to all of these discussions, to the very notion of what is the future of fashion going to be.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my all-time favorite images, period hands down, by any photographer ever, has to be one of Lee's from this time period. And it's shot in the basement of a hair salon. And I'm sure both of you know it well. And there are two gentlemen on a tandem bike pedaling. And what basically is happening is they are powering the hair dryers that are connected through these giant like duct tubes that women are getting their hair dried in the floor above. I mean, how did she even find some of the things happening? They're they're truly incredible.
1: It is absolutely amazing. And you know, there were, there was a lack of coal, lack of electricity in Paris, like blackouts, and yet still these couture presentations happening. Uh, And I think it's that real sort of dichotomy there that is just seems so shocking to the outside world. Mm
2: -hmm. So despite the fact that she was covering fashion in Paris and also helping relaunch French Vogue, which, by the way, had been shut down by the Nazis officially. de
3: Brunhoff had hidden the part of the machinery so that if they couldn't get hold of it and use it for their own means as well.
1: Yeah,
2: that's great. She comes back to England, Amy, and I think she continues to work a little bit with fashion here and there in those years that followed. But Amber, you write in the book that she became disillusioned with fashion after the war. So, Amy, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that and and what your grandmother's life looked like after World War II. And also, as promised earlier, I'd like to talk about the significance of Farley's house.
3: Yeah, I think Amber's, Amber's right. Uh, When you've witnessed life-changing events and soldiers that you've been chatting with a few minutes before dead in a ditch next to you, when you come back to England and are expected to then continue to shoot fashion, it's a little bit futile. You can tell through her photographs that she's desperately trying to reach inside and find the energy and the imagination and the creativity that she had invested in it before the war when there was more of a purpose. I mean, during the war and before the war, when she had more purpose and she tries to make herself do it. And Vogue are amazing. They really try to support her and and help her. But, they, but she's got all these demons in her head these things that you that you just can't you can't forget those kind of pictures and in the end she just found it too difficult we have a a theory at the archives that now, now that we know a bit more about ptsd which is what she suffered from we, we think she suffered from after the war is that ptsd has triggers and you know and they can be kind of quite are things that are unexpected, and we think that she possibly had some kind of trigger associated with taking fashion pictures or that kind of reportage that she was doing, because it becomes harder and harder for her to do. And even she does. I mean, they they even sent her off to Sicily to do an amazing kind of fashion on holidays shoot in 1949, and the pictures are technically really great, but they've not got that kind of the Lee Miller quirky bit of personality in them they're a bit they're a little bit flat and yeah in the end I think she learned to live with PTSD and depression by stopping doing it and hiding her stuff in the attic and by then completely reinventing herself as a gourmet cook (laughs) and for the last 15 years of her life Spent every time someone would ask her about the war, she'd talk about cooking or tell them to talk to somebody else about it. And she died a celebrity cook in Britain. And it's great. It's a great way of not, you know, not having to talk about it and and triggering um, these memories. If you're talking about blue spaghetti and and cauliflower breasts.
2: (laughs) It's interesting. This is is just like a, a funny little like connection. Because at one point, when Rudy Gernrich, the American designer, decided to retire, he launched a line of gourmet soups. So apparently, this is something that folks in the fashion world decided to turn to, is cooking. Yeah, well, I think Farley's was very much the basis of
3: where she did this. This is here. I'm I'm actually sitting in. At Farley's at the moment. Here she made her little herb garden that she put near the kitchen so she could just duck out quickly and get some fresh herbs. She had an orchard. She had a giant vegetable garden that she would get her parents to send her seeds over from America because she decided that English sweet corn was disgusting and only grown to feed horses on and that they needed American sweet corn. I mean, she would get into a lot of trouble for importing foreign seeds nowadays but there was a lot of different things growing in the garden and she just loved it and when you've lived through the war and witnessed people who have literally starved to death being able to sit down with people who you genuinely care about and who've survived the same kind of ordeals and just share a meal which for her you know, she still had this amazing creativity and amazing kind of mind. So using, uh, you know, rationing was still there as a restriction. So that made her have to flex her creativity even more. And using that to create a really lovely dish or slightly bonkers dish that she could then share with her friends or visitors was a really quite a cathartic thing.
2: Yeah. Well, and, and friends and visitors to Farley's house. Oh, my. Because... <laughs> Um, really like within her circle of very close friends are so many luminaries of modern art. Would you talk a little bit about that aspect of her life and, and her role within the surrealist movement? Gosh, and I think, I think my
3: favourite of her friends is Dorothea Tanning because she is just one awesome lady. And um, she came here a lot and was super supportive to Lee when she ha- was trying to deal with her demons. But Max Ernst obviously came with here a lot too. Picasso came to stay and she cooked for him. And Picasso, had she'd known since the late 30s when he'd painted her portrait more than six times. Uh, Leonora Carrington, she came here in the 60s with her sons. Gosh, is basically the who's who of 20th century artists, literary figures, set designers, paint, uh, any, you name it, they've probably been there. And not just surrealist artists. Also, um, there's a lot of early British pop artists that came here too, like Bridget Riley, Terry Hamilton, people like that.
2: And Farley's House also includes galleries and uh, your grandmother's art collection.
3: We, Yeah, I mean, my, my granddad, Roland, was a surrealist artist and a biographer of um, Tapia's Man, Man Ray, Miro, Picasso. So they both had a, a quite a crazy art collection. In fact, when I was at school and they were teaching us about 20th century art, I, was, I knew to keep my mouth shut because sometimes we <laughs> would be looking at pictures and they'd be like, ooh. It's at granddad's house. <laughs> I mean, his very famous picture, a weeping woman um, that relates to Guernica that's in the Tate collection, used to be here. Wow, in the dining room. So it is—it's it's that kind of caliber. They're not; those those ones aren't aren't here anymore. But there's still quite an amazing collection, and a lot of female artists as well, who in those days weren't properly recognised. I'm quite proud that they collected their work.
2: And some of the images from the book are currently on view this summer at Farley's House and Gallery in East Sussex. Uh, Where can our listeners learn a little bit more if they happen to be in the area this summer?
3: Well, the house is very much
2: kept as it was when Lee and Roland lived here. But the
3: galleries, they have shows from the collections, and we also show work from contemporary artists as well. And you can find out more about it on Farley's website, which is farleyshouseandgallery.co.uk.
2: And Amber, one last question for you. You know, Lee was New York born. She was Paris trained. But, you know, she made her mark in London during this period of time, which was a very difficult period when British fashion was in flux that we've been talking about today. Do you have any parting thoughts on Lee's legacy to fashion photography from this era or moving forward?
1: Well, to fashion photography, I think certainly that sort of utilitarian chic elements that she that she drew on I think also the sort of there is some comedy some humor in her work as well which I think sits quite well as a legacy within like a a body of work created in Britain you know like the women wearing the the fire masks and eye shields this is one of the pictures in the book Uh, they're wearing these things as protection from incendiary bombs. But it looks very much like a sort of modern art type, you know, surrealist or even a slightly earlier like sort of Bauhaus type facial furniture, I suppose, quite amazing. And and you can see she's sort of playing on that in the composition of the image as well. Um, but also, I think more broadly, I guess in terms of legacy of the particular messages that she was putting forward in Vogue, I think... In some ways, we're seeing a similar moment to that moment in the Second World War in terms of the current editorship. We have a British Vogue with Edward Enninthal, who is doing such fantastic stuff with Vogue in terms of addressing social issues and wider issues as well as fashion. Um, And for me, those things completely just go hand in hand. And it's so nice to see so much of that folded back into Vogue as a publication. Just one example, last summer he put key workers on the covers, mm-hmm. um, you know, during the pandemic uh, on the covers of British Vogue. But it's something that's addressed in every issue, social issues alongside fashion imagery. And so I think we're seeing a sort of moment that we haven't really seen in terms of British Vogue since the, since the Second World War in terms of that real marrying of fashion and social issues.
2: Well, and you can actually learn more, go into this a little bit further in terms of Lee's relevance within this period of time, because Amy, you have your own podcast. I'm muted. <laughs> it's not just it's not just me. I have um different guests
3: on each episode including Sixth Amber. I, she's my first. She's the first <laughs> guest and they they all address kind of different aspects around Lee's British fashion photography. And the title of the podcast is the same as the book, handily, Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain. And actually the book is going to be available very soon in America. Um, So it's worth looking out for that. The podcast is available on Spotify and Acast, or you can find it on the Lee Miller archives, which is leemiller.co.uk website on the news page or the Farley's House and Gallery website on the events page.
2: Ladies, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this incredible, amazing I don't even know, I'm, uh, very rarely do I get speechless on the show, but, but what do you say about Lee? I mean, she was something that we all
1: aspire to be. I would agree with that, definitely. Thank you so much for having us, April.
3: Yeah, thank you for having us, and it's been great meeting you.
0: Amy, Ambert, thank you so much for joining us for this glimpse into Lee Miller's work and world at this time. If this has left any of our listeners curious about the photographs and the book we have been discussing today, Lee Miller, Fashion and Wartime Britain, which was formerly only available in the UK, well, it is now available in the US distributed by Chicago Books. And we will put some additional reading racks for other biographies on Lee Miller in our show notes. And if you
2: are yearning to see some of Lee's work in person, Boy are you in luck because the exhibition of her fashion photographs at Farley's House and Gallery runs through August 8th of 2021 and an exhibition of Miller's work also just opened at the Dolly Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida. The exhibition which is called The Woman That Broke Boundaries, photographer Lee Miller, runs through January of 2022.
0: Miller's work is also included among the 120 photographers featured in the not-to-be-missed exhibition, The New Woman Behind the Camera, which opened only a couple of days ago at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. This runs through October 3rd, 2021 at the Met before it travels to the National Gallery of Art in D.C., where it will be on view through January 30th, 2022.
2: And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the picture you create each and every time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us with a question or an episode suggestion, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany our episodes.
0: We also still have a few spots left on our dress tour of Paris later this summer. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to likemindstravel.com. And thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you next on Thursday.